What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA meeting. There's a lot we got to talk about. Firstly, shout out to Michael Bisping for subbing to the channel. We've had a lot of fighters support us, but man, it's a little bit different when you have the real BMF giving you support. And I can go and say I am one of the few who picked him to beat Luke Rockhold. And I got receipts. I left some comments for my prediction. Let's see if I can find them. Look at this gem, unless you're driving. Keep your eyes on the road. Not only beat Rockhold, I knew Bisping would be able to knock him out for various reasons. Number one, coming off the Anderson Silva fight was huge for my pick. Left hooks were on point. His timing was on point, which is kind of a hurdle for him when he was going into uh, title eliminator fights. Once he got his timing down, more polished striking. Training under Jason Perillo was huge for his career. And that left hook he dropped Anderson Silva with and even caught him throughout the whole fight. He was able to use that against Luke Rockhold. We always knew Rockhold always dropped his right hand in the southpaw stance. Right, you could actually compare some of the moments with the Silva fight to the Rockhold fight. Silva was also dropping his right hand in the southpaw stance. And Bisping was able to find some left hooks over that. So it was very similar to what happened with Rockhold. The positioning was a little bit different. But the punching form and just the general aspect of that whole sequence. That timing was going to be perfect for him when he fought Luke. And then the Rockhold fight, when he was charging forward with the right hand instead... He was opening himself up to Rockhold's right hook, which is generally one of his biggest weapons, right? Right hook, left straight, right jab, left body kick, and right question mark kick. Those are his most comfortable techniques. Once Bisping went away from the right hand and started to use his left hook a lot more, that's when the success showed. And the other thing going into that fight was that Bisping's confidence was at a all-time high and the arrogance of Luke Rockhold as a champion. All of this mixed together, I was extremely confident that Bisping was going to win that fight. And also, too many people back in those days were underestimating him. I think for the reason that a lot of people didn't like him back in the day, it clouded their judgment on how good Bisping actually was. So shout out to Michael Bisping, one of the greatest middleweights of all time, and in my opinion, one of the best commentators in the sport right now. And from one Brit to another, Patty's kind of mad at us, guys. I like Patty Pimblett. I think he's great for the sport. He's an exciting fighter. He's fun to watch. But he got mad at me for telling the truth. And I understand a lot of the young fighters don't like to hear that, right? They want to believe they're the greatest thing on the planet. But as someone looking from the outside in, we don't have the same level of belief in that fighter like they have in themselves. No one's going to believe in fighters like they believe in themselves. That's a given fact for every single fighter. But I said that his hype and his skill right now do not really match. And this is what Patty felt defensive about. I mean, it also didn't help that a lot of people on Twitter were also trashing on him. I wasn't doing that. But it seems like in the hardcore space, whenever Patty gets brought up, a lot of people don't believe he's going to make it to the top of the division or something like that. I'm not saying all that. What I was saying was, people are out here thinking that he could beat a top 5 fighter right now. People are asking me, when is he going to become champion? It's like, wait... He's only had one fight in the UFC. We gotta wait and see what happens here. Same thing with Hamza Shemaev. When Hamza came out there and he had those good three wins in a row, we still weren't chalking him up as a future champion yet. I was thinking even for Hamza, who honestly looked more promising than almost any prospect in the sport, I still even said for that guy, it's way too soon to put him against Usman right now. And what dawned on me on how big Patty was, I went to the dentist and I went to the doctor. And these two guys never asked me about fighters. They also said they don't even watch the sport. And they both asked me about Patty Pimblett. I really ever get asked about fighters unless it's about Conor McGregor or something. For Patty to get brought up as well, he's a star in the sport, man. And that's great to see. I love to see that for Patty. But I have to be honest, man. I can't be delusional about it. I can't buy into the hype yet. I gotta see more from the guy. And that's only fair. I never like to just jump on the hype of a fighter so early in the UFC. Especially when he gets tagged in his first fight. And that's what honestly happened. He's great at jiu-jitsu, so him striking so long in that fight, maybe he was trying to prove a point. Perhaps. 
But that's why we got to see more from him. We got to see how good his jitsu is against some of the UFC talent. But as of what we saw, what he decided to show us, he's not there yet. The hype and the skill do not match. And honestly, that whole exchange I had with him pretty much confirmed to me what Luke Thomas said before, right? Luke agreed that a lot of fighters could be sensitive for the opinions that people have about them. In my opinion, wasn't even anything important. It wasn't even anything to be triggered about. It was pretty much, we got to see more from you to buy into the hype. That's pretty much all it was. But I necessarily do not blame fighters. I do not blame Patty for trying to prove people wrong and being a little bit defensive about it because they believe in themselves more than anybody else on the planet and they have to do that. You have to be somewhat delusional to fight in a cage like that. You have to believe you're the greatest thing in the planet. You have to believe no one's going to beat you. Right, Even if you're up against Francis Ngannou, you got to believe that you can beat this guy. And you have to believe that not only will you beat him, but you will show superiority over him. Not just like a fluke knockout, but you are just going to beat him from pillar to post. You have to believe in it first mentally before you do it physically. So I 100% understand why certain fighters are going to be a bit defensive about some of the opinions that the fans, other fighters, the brass, and other analysts have about them. They're trying to prove everybody wrong and realize their dreams. Now, I'm not going to say what Chill said about Patty. That's way further than what I said. But I hope Patty fulfills his dreams and aspirations in the sport. 100%. Similar aspirations to what like Kamar Usman did, right? Nobody believed in Kamar Usman before. Everybody thought of him as some boring fighter. Nobody wanted to watch him. Nobody wanted to fight him. No one was promoting him. But he believed he was the best fighter in the world. And he went out and did it. He's the, he's the number one pound for pound fighter in the world now. It's amazing to see what Usman did with his career. All the recognition that he's getting right now. From a guy who was shunned out for his boring style and dodged by almost every fighter. Thankfully, RDA was in the welterweight division when Usman was there. Because RDA fights anybody at any time. If RDA was not there, Usman would still be a contender trying to get a title shot. From that guy, he became the number one pound for pound fighter in the world. Making millions of dollars. He's on GQ now. And a lot of people just love to watch him now. It's a lot of credit to, uh, of course, his coaches, right? Trevor Whitman did an amazing job with his hands and made his stand-up a lot more polished and exciting to watch, right? Trevor Whitman is an amazing coach at bringing wrestlers and Brazilian jiu-jitsu artists so he could develop their striking to where now they are going to be a well-rounded fighter, right? Kamar Usman was a great wrestler. Justin Gaethje was a great wrestler. Rose Namajunas is a great Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist. So a bunch of the credit has to go to Trevor Whitman as well. But guys like Usman and Nganu, etc., are the embodiment of hard work and perseverance paying off. And that's why I love to see from Patty Pimblet as well. But some things came out of that UFC 270 card, uh, Francis Gone versus Surreal Gone. One very interesting thing to talk about is about the weight. We know the cage weight, the fight night weight, for every single fighter that fought on that card. And it's pretty shocking. So it seemed like Francis Gano did not even cut down weight that much. I mean, he gained, what, three pounds? He went from 257 in the weigh-ins to 260 in the cage. Surreal Gun actually lost weight coming into the cage. He weighed 247 at weigh-ins, 245 in the cage. Now, this is the one that gets crazy. We all know Davis and Figueroa is a very big guy. But even dropping weight coming into the fight smaller than before so he can make the weight more comfortably, he still came in massive. So Brandon Moreno was 124 in the weigh-ins. He was 136 on fight night. So he gained 12 pounds, right? He was almost like the bantamweight limit when he walked into the cage. Davis and Figueroa went from 124 to 143. He gained almost 20 pounds as a flyweight. 20 pounds is a lot different than a heavyweight gaining 20 pounds because it's by body percentage. Brandon Moreno went up 10% in body weight. Davis and Figueroa went up 15.5%. He was a featherweight in the cage. Well, Moreno was almost exactly a bantamweight. This is another reason why we need a change in the weight cutting protocol. I mean, that should not be allowed. That is crazy. That is almost the equivalent of growing out a third leg. For a male, one leg is the equivalent of 16.7% of your body weight. 
Figueredo almost grew out an entire new leg and weight. But shockingly, he wasn't the guy that got the biggest coming into fight night. It was actually Cody Stamen. Cody Stamen went from 135 and a half to 159. 17.3% body weight. That's more than growing out an entire leg. Saeed Nurmagomedov went from 136 to 148.8. Cody Stamen came in so heavy. He has such a massive physical advantage just to get submitted in 47 seconds. That's so insane, man. And here we got to talk about Francis Agano and Surreal Gone. So... I am pretty sad if Engano leaves the sport because the progression he's made as an MMA fighter, right, to gain the wrestling skills, to progress his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu skills and be more patient on the feet, you know, more technical as a striker and being much better at fighting at a game plan, showing his experience in MMA just to go to boxing, you know, for him, it's great, you know, get the money. There's nothing to lose fighting Tyson Fury. But like I said before, I have a feeling that once he tastes that money, he's going to keep fighting in boxing, no matter if he wins or loses, because he have more opportunities to make more money in that sport. And Ngannou is the best heavyweight in MMA. Even though I did say that Cyril Gan should have won the fight, I still think Ngannou was the better fighter. The reason why I say that is, I don't think the rules reflect who the better fighter is. In some instances, like that one, the rules state that if you go for submission attempts and they contribute to the potential end of the match, that trumps controlling somebody. It just does. That's what the rule says. But the way that played out, I don't think going for a heel hook, it getting defended, and then someone controlling you for the majority of that round should give you the round. Surreal Gun should have won the fight, but Francis Agano is the best fighter in that division. So now the questions come up. Who is the best heavyweight now? If Ngano leaves the sport, is it going to be Surreal Gun? Is it going to be Stipe Miocic? It looks like a lot of people believe that Surreal Gun is the best heavyweight without Ngano there. And it's going to be about time where he gets the heavyweight title and he proves that he is the best heavyweight and goes on his tremendous win streak. Because striking-wise, nobody's touching him. He showed in that Ngano fight, pretty much nobody's going to be able to touch this guy in the feet. He already beat Alexander Volkov. He already destroyed Derek Lewis. He beat Ngannou on the feet. It's gonna be hard for Stipe to box with him. We'll see what Tom Aspinall does in the future. But striking wise, right now, nobody's touching Surreal Gun. He's the best heavyweight striker in the history of MMA. And he's only, what, 11 professional fights into his career. But the one guy who's gonna be able to test that claim and show to us how good Surreal Gun actually is, is when he fights Stipe Miocic. If Stipe just puts a wrestling clinic on him or beats him using his wrestling, it really shows where Surreal Gun stands in the division. If he goes out there and destroys Stipe, nobody touches him besides Francis Ngannou. If he goes out there and gets wrestled and loses, now there's questions. Can Tom Aspinall beat him? Can Curtis Blades beat him? Could these other wrestlers in this division beat this guy? Because there's an argument getting thrown out there. A lot of Surreal Gun's opponents have been strikers, so he's been able to get past him and look almost perfect against everybody until he goes up against Francis Agano. Now, if he shuts down Stipe's wrestling, number one, it shows that Cyril Gano will most likely improve after that Ngannou fight, but it could also show that Ngannou's wrestling is probably on another level as well. There's a lot of questions that came off of that fight, man. I'm really curious to see how Cyril Gano fights Stipe. Striking from a distance, Stipe does nothing to Gano. It's going to be so hard for him to even touch Cyril Gano from a distance, and it's ultimately where the fight starts. Right, and Surreal Gan is so much faster. He's so much better at keeping that distance than Stipe is covering it. Gan absolutely picks Stipe apart from range. So it would be up to Stipe and his coaches to devise an intelligent pressure game plan or practice catching kicks in order to get the fight to the ground. Right, because Stipe punches short. He has a long 80-inch reach, but oftentimes when he's throwing punches, he likes to throw them pretty short because when he throws them long, he gets off balance a bit. And his front footing can be a bit wonky to catch Surreal Gun, right? Surreal Gun is so fluid and quick. It's going to be hard for Stipe to catch him. As fast as Stipe's hands are, his footwork does not match up to it. So the big unknown about that fight is how does a real wrestler 
deal with Surreal Gone here? Was Ngannou's wrestling just that good? Or is Surreal Gone's take the defense that bad? We gotta see how someone like Stipe Miocic deals with him. Now, will that be the next fight? Surreal Gone versus Stipe? I don't know, man. John Jones versus Stipe Miocic for the vacant heavyweight title. I can see this going on. It's better promotionally. More fans will be willing to see that. While allowing Surreal Gone to add up more experience in the cage, put him up against Curtis Blades. He goes and beats Curtis Blades, next title shot for him. And also, Blades is the heaviest wrestler in the division. It'd be an excellent next fight for Surreal Gan after what happened to him when he fought Nganu. I would have to pick Stipe to beat John Jones, especially off of that huge layoff for Jones. And then we could potentially see who the best heavyweight in the division is, Stipe or Surreal Gan. Oh, and I want to address some technical talks I had with some people here, specifically about the Cater versus Giga fight. There were a few moments in that fight where some people were questioning some of the technical exchanges between the two. Specifically, the conditioning Giga was trying to do against Cater by going with left hooks over the top, conditioning Cater to defend that punch, lean away from it, exposing the body for Giga to change the left hook, but this time to the body instead. And this conditions Cater to allow Giga to attack him to the head with a right straight instead. What I have to say here is, where some people were saying that you should be doing, it's dangerous. You never want to drop your hand to parry a body hook, unless you want a free ride to the hospital. This causes so many openings over the top, this is almost a for sure way to get knocked out in the fight, because number one, it's not just the initial sequence of you trying to parry a body hook, because let's say you parry the body hook. You start to get conditioned of that's the way you're gonna do it. Because it worked once, you're gonna try it again, and ultimately, what that leaves open is your head from a feint into a rising hook over the top, and you can't block this rising hook because you dropped your hand. You would be making the same mistake people did against Mike Tyson. And it doesn't even need to be a rising hook over the same side. If you're trying to parry a body shot, you're naturally focusing on your body. The opponent could throw a low feint to your body and come up over the top with a straight instead on the opposite side and it will still connect because you're not focusing on defending your head. Do not try to parry body hooks. The way you defend body hooks is by tucking in your elbows and angling against the hook. And with all that, we're going to go right to the questions. We're going to start with the members first, move to Patreon, and then go right into the public questions. First question by Robert. Which fighter out of all the UFC fighters has the most entertaining catalog of fights to watch? I would put Justin, Robbie, Nick Force, and Bobby Green in my top five. That's a good list. In my list, I'll say Robbie Lawler's in there, Justin Gaethje, Tony Ferguson, Fedor Emelianenko, and I'd probably say Chuck Liddell. Then we go to Diego Stork. Which UFC fighters would make the best transition into boxing and do any of them become world champions? Also, what are your thoughts on Paul versus Woodley only doing 65,000 pay-per-view buys? And does Masvidal beat Jake Paul in boxing? So which fighters would have the best transition? Patreon, for sure. He's the number one guy. I would say Francis Agano due to his power, right? He can make anything happen. But technically, you know, in heavyweight division, you don't need to be as technical to be successful. And Gano can kind of fit that mold. He's very athletic. He's very big. And he has some boxing skill, at least. Conor McGregor would do pretty well in boxing, given his unique style. I would probably have to say Dustin Poirier's in there. Um, I think he would have a hard time, for sure. But after this, it kind of falls off. I mean, a lot of guys in MMA will not be too successful. None of them become world champions. Let's be honest here. The closest guy that could be a champion is Francis Ngannou. Because through technique, you're not going to beat any of the world champions. It would have to be through some kind of gimmick some kind of attribute advantage where you just hit too hard, you could find that one punch. That's why Francis Ngannou can kind of close that technical gap using his power. And Paul versus Woodley not being successful in pay-per-view doesn't shock me because number one, Jake Paul versus Tommy Fury was kind of the fight getting promoted. They saw the first Woodley fight and it wasn't exciting. So a lot of the casual fans are not going to be too hyped about Jake versus Woodley too. But it did make a viral moment with that knockout. So a lot of people saw the knockout, not a lot of people saw the whole fight. Doesn't surprise me too much. Much, and I think 
this whole Jake Paul movement might be slowing down in steam. I think people kind of already saw, you know, the gist of it, and they're kind of getting a little bit bored of it. You call me handle freak show fights for so long, you know, celebrity fights for so long. The UFC only did them a couple times for a reason, you know. Sometimes they're fun. You know, James Tony versus Randy Couture is a fun one. You know, CM Punk coming to the UFC brings some kind of interest. But you can't do them for every fight, you know. And yes, Masvidal destroys Jake Paul in a boxing match. Remember, Jake Paul is looking pretty good against these wrestlers, but he makes a lot of fundamental mistakes. Like a lot of them that Jorge does not do. One of the biggest holes in Jake Paul's boxing game is just his footing. Watch his feet when he's boxing. It's like watching a horror movie. Then we go to Yusuf Cisse. How would you describe Gegard Musasi? In particular, his jab, his ground and pound, and his ability to remain calm throughout the entire time he's in a fight. He's someone who has been in MMA for almost 20 years, and to me, he still finds a way to improve and doesn't seem to be declining. Okay, so Gegard Musasi is a well-rounded fighter in terms of he can do everything, right? He has a pretty good jab, it's snappy, it's long, it snaps up from the hip, so it can be pretty hard to see sometimes. He has pretty good wrestling, he has good Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, he has good kicks sometimes, but with as many skills as he has, he doesn't put them together that way in a fight. His pace can be pretty slow, and some of his movements are pretty slow. He's definitely a plotter, so sometimes he can look pretty slow, but that can sometimes create a false rhythm. He moves slow, but some of his punches come out very fast, and it shocks his opponents. I mean, look at the way he knocked down Chris Weidman. And honestly, that calmness that he has in the cage can fool even a lot of fans about what he's doing out there and his ability to fight at a certain kind of pace. And those 20 years in MMA are going to help him to stay calm against some of the most formidable opponents. But here's the thing, him still improving... Is pretty rare because he's not just improving now he's been improving ever since he started off the top of my head i don't think he's ever declined his entire career he's only been getting better ever since he started but it's a slow gradual progression he isn't getting exponentially better in between fights it's just a gradual increase in skill every time you see him compete even 20 years into his career and that's pretty special then we go to roberts Best fighter to never win a belt. Cowboy always comes to my mind. Yeah, Cowboy's one of them. I would have to say Yoel Romero might be the number one guy. More because of his skill and how he competes up against the best fighters in the world. Right? Robert Whitaker fights. Israel Adesanya fight. The Paulo Costa fight. It's difficult for a lot of the guys in the middleweight division to outright beat him. So Romero, I would probably have to say, is the top guy to never win any belt in any organization. A lot of people put up uh, Alexander Gustafsson as one. Right? Him having a win over Glover Teixeira is actually big now. That age like wine. I would say uh, Stephen Warner. Boy Thompson is one of the best fighters to never win a belt, and I can agree with Cowboy up there as well. They'll go to the sneaky skunk UFC champs at the end of 2022. Oh, this one is interesting. So heavyweight division, Francis Ngannou because of his whole contract. Like heavyweight division, I don't see Glover staying as champ. Then again, it's hard to see even Yuri Prohaska stay as champ. I'll say Magomed Ankalaev. Middleweight division, I will say Israel Adesanya. Welterweight division, Kamaru Usman. Lightweight division, Islam Makashev. Featherweight division, Alexander Volkanovsky. Bantamweight division, Piotr Jan. Flyweight, Davis Figueredo. Women's bantamweight, Valentina Shevchenko. Women's flyweight, Valentina Shevchenko. And women's strawweight, Carla Esparza. And then we go to Jesse Griffin. Do you think the heavyweight division sees a lot of older fighters with long careers is due to in part of the absence of weight cutting? I believe that is part of it. It helps the longevity of the fighters, right? Not constantly cutting weight and stuff like that. But at the same time, heavyweights don't need to be as technical to go far in the sport, right? A lot of fighters can be successful just by having power. And remember, power is the last thing to go for a fighter with age. That's why even like Stipe Miocic is what, 39 years old? And he's still one of the top dogs in that division? That's why Derek Lewis can go so far, even though he only has a right hand. Francis Agano went so far early. Like, you don't see that sort of thing in any other division. Not even like heavyweight, and those guys are big. Then we get to Bill Lennonfelser. 
fantasy matchups. Connor versus Uriah at 145 after tough. Connor destroys Uriah. Connor versus TJ at 145. Connor destroys TJ. Faber versus TJ. So you're saying Prime versus Prime? Um, TJ destroys Faber. Prime Carwin versus Nganu. I would go with Nganu, but anything can happen in that fight. That's like watching Godzilla versus that other big monster dragon thing. I never watched a Godzilla movie. Johnny Hendricks versus Usman. I would say Usman, but that would be an interesting fight. And the reason why that fight could be somewhat competitive is because Hendricks had five-round cardio. He had insane knockout power. He could defend all of Usman's takedowns. To think about it very generally, it's like imagining Colby Covington being a little bit shorter, but having much more power. And just like we saw with Usman versus Covington, when Usman goes up against another great wrestler, he stands with them. And Southpaw versus Orthodox, if Usman stays in an Orthodox stance, Hendrick's left overhand is going to be a major weapon for him. And also the leg kicks are going to mix up a lot of it as well. Hendrix was a good leg kicker. He mixed them really well with his hands and just put them together in combinations. So I could definitely see exchanges where Hendrix is catching Usman in close range but at the end of the day I think Usman's jab is going to be his biggest weapon especially if he switches the southpaw it opens it up a lot more and takes away the left hook opening for Hendrix and in the orthodox stance Hendrix did not have great head movement he had good footwork he would bounce forward and back a lot so that could potentially get him away from any shot but he moves on a straight line for the most part if he's getting off the center line it's usually when he's throwing his left hand but from a distance it's gonna be hard for him to close that gap without Usman seeing a move you know so I do think it would be an amazing fight. They both have great chins. They both have great power, great wrestlers, great cardio. Hendricks is a little bit more technical with the overall striking, whereas Usman is a lot more effective and efficient with his hands, especially using his reach. GSP versus Silva. I would definitely go with GSP. He would be able to take down Silva. He's so sound defensively on the feet. And ultimately, I think he would just grind it out to a decision. I don't think Silva's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, especially with his ability to get up from the bottom and using his triangles, using his arm bars, scramble out of the position. I don't think any of that is going to work against GSP. I think a lot of it will replicate what GSP did to Nick Diaz on the ground. And Whitaker versus GSP at 185 after GSP won the title. I would go with Whitaker. That is one of the worst matchups for GSP ever. Whitaker is one of the best anti-wrestlers in the sport. He's bigger than GSP. He has more power. They both have that karate style. They're really good at blitzing in with shots, especially using that jab, right? GSP and Whitaker have some of the best jabs in MMA, but GSP at 185, he was a bit slower. I believe Whitaker would be faster, more powerful, bigger, stop the wrestling almost entirely. GSP would be shut down in almost every moment. On the feet, I think it would be somewhat of a chess match. I don't think either guy would really stun the other or catch the other with some big shot. They would try some things out there, but they could both be so defensively sound. I just see Whitaker outpointing GSP for the most part. Appreciate the videos, man. Much love. Thank you so much. And then we get to Eric Perez. What's the biggest factor in a champion's longevity? I honestly think it's the chin and cardio because no matter how good you are, you're eventually going to get caught. Not saying that skill isn't involved because to become a champion, you obviously have to be skilled. Perfect example is Usman and Jones. There's a lot of things that go into it, right? It's not just uh, one specific factor, you know? Chin and cardio is definitely going to be a main one. When you're a champion, you're constantly going to be finding the best guys in the division back to back. You're finding the next monster in line every single time. So you're going to get hit. Even Usman got hit, right? Usman got rocked and even dropped before by uh, Gilbert Burns. He got hit by Colby Covington. John Jones, like you mentioned, got hit a lot by Dominic Reyes and Alexander Gustafson, etc. Even uh, Lyoto Machida caught him pretty good. You can look at GSP in his prime, right? The greatest fighter of all time. Got dropped by a head kick from Carlos Condit. And many other shots from Johnny Hendricks, for an example. So no matter how good you are, unless you're the perfect fighter, 
you're going to get caught, right? You're going to have off days. You're not going to be at your best every single time. Just like anybody with any other profession, you're not going to be in your perfect form every time you go out to work. So attending cardio to withstand any kind of adversity is definitely going to take you a long way. The key, though, is not to get hit too often. That's why I think Charles Oliveira is probably not going to be a champion that long. He gets hurt too often to stay at the top for so long. He's a good example of proving your point right here with chin and cardio. But there's a lot of things that go into it, man. Like I said before, perseverance, hard work, constantly changing as a fighter, constant adaptations to your game to not only specifically to go up against a certain style, but just for you to add new wrinkles to your game. Francis Zagano adding wrestling. If he never did that, he would have lost a surreal gun. If he didn't make those adaptations to try to progress as a mixed martial artist, he would have already lost his belt. If Usman never made the adjustments to become a better striker, he would have lost a Colby Covington. That is a huge thing about staying as a champ as well. You constantly have to keep up with the competition. And that's why guys like GSP and Usman and Jose Aldo, that's why these guys are held with such high regard because of how long they were able to stay at the top. It's the hardest thing to do. Even GSP said, winning two championships is not as hard as being a champion for a long time. And then with a dangerously dubious Double Davidson. Tongue twister as a name. Hello, Weasel. Love your content. Thank you so much. I have a question about Giga versus Cater. In round one, Giga did extremely well, being the much better striker until the slip and grappling that slowed him down. Do you see Giga's development kind of going the same route as McGregor, where he's an elite striker in the early rounds, but through grappling becomes significantly worse? Or do you think he could remedy this problem with energy management and in terms of a pure striker, how does Giga stand up with the rest of the division, top 5 or top 10? Interesting question. So yeah, Giga was doing very well early until the wrestling and then he gassed out right away. Halfway into the second round, he wasn't even the same guy anymore. That is one of the worst displays of cardio I've ever seen. Which in the previous question, it's going to be hard for him to ever be a champion because of that aspect. Now here's the thing about Giga Shikadze. He's never going to have great cardio. That's just what it's going to be. Just like Conor McGregor, as you mentioned, these guys are never going to be able to have great cardio because of how fast twitch they are. His energy management is going to allow him to go further into a fight, but he's going to have to fight differently. He can't back up in fights too much because the opponent putting pressure on him, like Cater did, is not going to allow him to settle in that kind of pace that he wants. In order to manage your energy, that sounds kind of weird. In order to manage your expending cardio, you need to either be able to control the pace of the fight or counter the opponent trying to take control of it so he can keep the fight in the center of the octagon. Giga cannot back up in fights anymore. He's going to have to use his reach and height to just pick at the opponent from a distance. If he finds the opening for a knockout, maybe take those in moments, but not explode and create openings like he did against Kelvin Cater. If he's going to want to fight for five rounds and just go further into fights and fix his gassing issue, it's going to be hard for him to get those spectacular knockouts like he's looking for. So it will change him as a fighter and the way his fights play out. And no matter what, if the fights go in the fourth or fifth rounds, he's going to be tired. So it's tough for Giga Shikadze. It's tough for a guy to go far in the sport without having good cardio. But in terms of pure striking, Giga Shikadze is definitely up there without looking at his cardio. If he had unlimited cardio, if he never fatigues, and same thing with his opponent, I don't think there's a fighter that can beat him in the striking. Max Holloway kind of builds off of breaking you down. Of course, in a fight, Max Holloway would be Giga Shikadze, but with just looking at pure striking skill, I think Giga might be the number one guy. And then we go to the public questions. This is going to be exciting. So we're going to start with the most liked comment. Lucas Wilmink, do you think Corey Sanhagen can evolve and beat Pietro Jan? The fight was awesome, but definitely in the later rounds, Jan was pretty much in control. I do see Corey as champion material, though I do not see him beating Jan. Love your videos. Thank you so much. So he's going to definitely evolve. Corey Sanhagen is still pretty young in the game. He's hitting his prime. He might be in his prime at the moment, but I don't see him being Pietro Jan. I think he's like the next guy. He might be the second or third best in the division. Depends on what happens with Jose Aldo and maybe even Aljamain Sterling. Because remember, Aljamain did beat Corey Sanhagen. So 
I don't think Corey touches the belt. He's championship material if Patreon did not exist. And then we go to ADC. How do you think Jan's more laid-back data downloading style would go up against Max's, whose main strength is capitalizing on you, letting him start with his volume? And then who do you see winning if they're in the same body type, just purely skill for skill? Whose style do you think overcomes the other? ignore weight classes okay so stylistically this is a very interesting kind of match because on one hand Jan's slow start of data downloading is such a big weakness against max's style of avalanching on top of you with early momentum because if you can't stop max's momentum it creates a snowball effect it gets harder to fight him over time and he breaks you down right his volume never ends he never gasses out he breaks you down that early momentum as Jan is trying to download the data can ultimately cause an overload of data max can overload the data to the point where Patreon cannot really react the same way and he's ultimately going to be defensive for the most part of the fight that can absolutely happen but if he does download the data one of Max's biggest weaknesses is fighting fire with fire with someone right and Patreon is excellent in the third and fourth and fifth rounds of firing back at you and meeting you in exchanges so what I will say here is if the fight goes into the third and fourth and fifth Jan destroys Max's style the first and second rounds Jan gets destroyed by Max's style so there's that bridge and it all comes down to can Jan download enough data in the overwhelming amount of volume in the first and second rounds to cross that bridge and start firing back at max, taking those openings, and start to control the pace. So if they were the same body type, at the end of the day, I would think Patreon style would beat Max's. That was a very interesting question. And then we go to Kai. Charles Oliveira came out and said he only sees 50% without his glasses and he sees three people when he's in the cage. How much do you think that contributes in his lack of head movement? Do you think if he gets laser eye surgery that it would improve his defense? How good is Olives with 100% eyesight? Always love the content. The new mythical creature, Charles Oliveira with 20-20 vision. Okay, so someone told me before that speaks Portuguese that he was kind of joking with seeing three people in the cage, but it is true that he sees 50% without his glasses. And that might be a big reason as to why he's not moving his head from punches because he just simply doesn't see them. He probably puts so much pressure on opponents these days just so he can control the pace and overwhelm the opponent before they can throw shots at him. That might be a big reason as to why his style has changed to be so fast-paced. He should definitely get laser eye surgery though. Like that's crazy man. That's almost like the whole thing with Michael Bisping. How do you go into the cage barely seeing? And then with the Michael the Warrior. Based on the type of athleticism, kinds of movement patterns, physical demands, etc. Which non-combat sport has the best carryover to MMA? Hopefully this made sense. I think it's a little bit out of the norm. I know a lot of people are be thinking, oh, American football for the size and explosiveness. Basketball for the length, the height, and the footwork. But I honestly don't think it's those kind of sports. I think... Breakdancing is one of them. And yes, breakdancing is an Olympic sport. They're actually adding it to the 2024 Olympics. I actually love watching that stuff. It's a great transition to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. They have mastery over their body. They're extremely athletic and strong and fast. You have to be athletic in order to do it. And man, it can be tiring. Their flexibility is insane. Their balance is insane. Gymnastics, I believe, is also very similar. Great amount of strength. Great athleticism. The balance is insane. And the mastery of physical mechanics is so important in the sport. Now, it is true for uh, gymnastics and even sometimes breakdancing. You got to be a little bit shorter. So the majority of the fighters you're going to see from guys who come from breakdancing or gymnastics are going to be in the lighter weight classes. Whereas for, you know, American football players and basketball players, they're going to go right into the heavyweights, you know, the light heavyweights and stuff like that. So honestly, when I think about it that way, looking at it for the specific weight classes, basketball might be one of the best for, you know, heavyweights and light heavyweights because of the, the footwork they're able to develop, the speed they're able to operate on. And those are very important for heavyweights and light heavyweights to master. 
So basketball can also be a good base athletically to go into MMA. Then we go to Z. If Hamza versus Burns does happen, how do you see the fight going? And would Hamza get a title shot if he wins? Thanks for the amazing content. No problem, man. I just tried my best. This would be a crazy fight if it happens. They would be really jumping up Hamza in the ladder. Stylistically, on paper, this is a hard fight for Hamza, man. Number one, Gilbert's faster than him. Number two, technically a better striker as of what we know so far. Number three, he has a lot of knockout power. From the past when we see Hamza's defense, generally doesn't move his head too much. His head movement really just combines with his takedowns. He's not going to really want to take down Gilbert Burns too much, I think at least. That's what it really comes down to. If he can take down Gilbert Burns and control him and avoid the submissions, he would win the fight. If he has the ability to take down Burns and smash him, I don't think the striking gap is enough for Gilbert Burns to win the fight. So, I don't know, man. It's tough. I mean, Burns also doesn't move his head. Hamza hits really hard, but we know Hamza has a chin. Burns doesn't have a good chin. On paper, Burns would win the fight. He's just technically overall superior, but I'm going to go with Hamza, man. The guard game in MMA these days is hard to fight with. I think Hamza would take Burns to the ground. He might even tag him on the feet and knock him out. He's pretty quick with his footwork, so he's going to be able to get in and out of those overhands, potentially try to take him down from there, body lock him, trip him out, slam him, whatever it is. And I think he would be so aware on the ground with Burns. He would probably be able to transition through the guard and from there smash Gilbert Burns, man. If he wins, though, does he get a title shot? Yes, he would, 100%. Burns is the number two ranked fighter. If Hamza beats the number two ranked fighter, the amount of hype this guy would have would blow the roof off any place he fights. The UFC would absolutely jump on Hamza versus Usman after that, 100%. There's too much money to be made. Then would a Jameer be? Who do you think would have won if Kane and John Jones fought in 2012? Also, how would C-level Kane do up against the top 15 fighters of today? Kane versus John Jones in 2012. That was the year that John Jones beat Vitor Belfort. I'm going to have to go with John Jones for sure. I find it hard for Kane to take him to the ground, and Kane doesn't really move his head too well. He moves it a lot, but sometimes it has like no purpose. And that's why at times he got tagged so easily in fights. John Jones side kicks to the knee, his oblique kicks would be a problem for Kane as well. And ultimately that range is going to give Kane so many issues. He's going to try to get off the center line and throw those looping overhands and hooks, especially that left hook of his. But I believe he's too plotting to catch John Jones to be honest here. John would pick Kane apart from a distance. Almost anything he wanted to throw would catch him. And how would C-level Kane do up against top 15 fighters? Okay, so he beats Sergei Pavlovich. Utterly annihilates Walt Harris, beats Ivanov, definitely beats Agusa Sakai, definitely beats Taito Ivasa, loses a Tom Aspinall, beats Marcin Tubora, beats Shamil, beats Chris Dawkins, definitely beats Rosenstrike, beats Volkov, beats Curtis Blades, but very competitive fight, definitely beats Derek Lewis, gets beat by Stipe, beat by Cyril Gan, and gets beat by Nganu. Then we go to Dars Bader, who in your opinion is the second best in each division, and what would you add in their games and technique or approach to raise their chances of dethroning the champs of 2022? So heavyweight division, Cyril Gan, light heavyweight, Jan Blachowicz, middleweight, Robert Whittaker, welterweight, it's pretty hard to say. I would probably pick Colby, but I think Burns beats Colby and maybe even Hamza beats Colby, but everybody else Colby dominates. Whereas some of the other guys like maybe Leon Edwards will give Gilbert Burns a hard time. They'll might give Burns a hard time. Vicente Luque might give him a hard time. So I would probably pick Colby, but it's up in the air. Lightweight, I would say, is Charles Oliveira. Featherweight, it's Max Holloway. Bantamweight is Corey Sanhagen. Flyweight is Brendan Moreno. Women's bantamweight, Jermaine Duranami. Women's flyweight, Tatiana Suarez. And woman strawweight, Jean Weili. I'm going to skip your second question because I do want to get to other questions here. But this next one actually covers the main one I would want to talk about. It's the big fight coming up. Corti Forse. If you were Robert's coach, what approach would you suggest for him to take against Izzy in their next fight? So I talked about this with my brother. 
at lengths because my brother is a big Robert Whitaker fan. What I've come up with is it's hard for Robert, man. It's hard for Bobby Knuckles. No matter what approach he takes, there's a big hole for Izzy to strike through. Robert Whitaker has to be perfect in order to beat Izzy. Izzy doesn't necessarily have to be perfect to beat Robert. The big approach that everybody believes that Robert should go to, and probably the one he might go to, more patience, more wrestling, stay on the outside a little bit more, probably try to pressure Izzy slowly, and just find the openings through there instead of creating them with big, powerful overhands and stuff. Getting countered for the most part because those overhands always got him countered. Izzy was setting up the off-step hooks against those overhands the entire fight until it actually knocked him out. But what happens if Robert Whitaker stays on the outside a little bit more, is calm, calculated, and starts downloading data for him to attack Izzy? He gets to, he gets picked apart from the outside, man. He gets jabbed in the face. He gets kicked to the legs. The guy's so much longer than Whitaker. Whitaker has to get in. And the way that Robert Whitaker can get in and be successful is for him to get away from his style. He can't be that blitzing karate fighter from a distance like he fights everybody. He needs to be able to walk Izzy down and be a little bit more plotting instead of moving around the cage back and forth and stuff. The more he bounces back and forth, the more he gives Izzy control of the center because that range is going to naturally force Robert Whitaker to move back a bit unless he explodes forward like before. And that's the big hole again, man. If he explodes forward, he gets open to get countered. Now, the wrestling can bridge a lot of things together, but I do find it hard for Whitaker to take Izzy down. I mean, even Derek Brunson couldn't take him down, and Derek Brunson is the best wrestler in this division. Robert Whitaker is a good wrestler, and he mixes up his striking pretty good with him when he actually attempts it. But Izzy has amazing takedown defense. And if you're not that much bigger than him, if you're not as physical as Jan Blachowicz, as strong as that guy is, it's hard to take Izzy down. It's really hard. His length alone makes it difficult, and he's developed the takedown defensive skills in order to defend some of the best wrestlers in this division. What I believe Whitaker's takedown is going to be best for is for him to close the distance, get inside of Izzy's face, push him up into the cage or something like that. It's all about controlling the distance. If Whitaker can close the distance at any time, body lock Izzy or even attempt to take him down with a double leg, the more it's going to offset Izzy and break his rhythm. But just using that alone is not enough for Whitaker to win the fight. Now, what can happen here is, if he shoots down for takedowns and goes over the top of the overhand, you know, the classic wrestler combo, that stuff can kind of work. But what I think is, the main target Whitaker should be aiming for is the body. Forget the head. Jabs to the head only. Body hooks, kicks to the body, fake takedowns to go up into the body instead. Use the stutter steps, use the feints in order to open up body shots because Izzy is always pulling back, which opens up his body. And he's always looking to counter with those hooks, which also opens up the body. And round leg kicks from Whitaker are going to be very useful. Not too much side kicks, man. He almost got head kicked for doing that last time. Izzy has that down, man. There has to be round leg kicks, body attacks, clinching up, wrestling attempts, jabs to the face only. But Robert Whitaker has to approach the fight like this is going to go five rounds to a decision. And then we go to Makashev Propaganda. Thoughts on these upcoming prospect matchups. Masar Evloev versus Ilya Tapuria. I think it's a fantastic fight. Masar is going to look to control the fight for the most part. Not really inflict as much damage. Tapuria is dangerous no matter where the fight goes, right? So Evloev is going to have to mind his P's and Q's and not go for anything too risky. The distance from far to close range is going to be one of the biggest hurdles for Evloev to be successful in. Tapuria is always going to look at the counter. And Tapuria is going to look to sprawl, man. This guy sprawls like prime Robbie Lawler. Evlev might be able to chain wrestle from there, try to get a duck under to the back, and that's going to be the biggest fight for Tapuria, just to try to pry open the hands and get away from Evlev's pressure, and that is going to be key here. If Tapuria can push Evlev back, that wrestling threat is significantly decreased. 
Evlev is not going to have the cage as a reinforcement. He's not going to be able to push him up there and just grind him out for the takedown. But as you know in MMA, if you want to go for the safe pick in a fight, Mavsar is probably the safer pick to go to. But I believe Taporia definitely has the skills in order to knock Evlev out. That pressure is going to be everything for Taporia, man. And on the back foot, I don't think Evlev is going to be that hard to hit. Then Velia versus Jack Shore. This is an excellent matchup, man. Two guys who are incredibly well-rounded, good wrestlers, good counter-punchers, pretty good boxers, and great kicks. There's a difference between the two, though. Shore does not waste energy for something, right? He's not going to throw something for no reason. He's not going to make a movement if it doesn't have a purpose. Valiev is kind of the opposite at times. He'll just throw things out there and not really look to land anything. He'll throw a jab to the body from like a mile away, and something like that can get countered if you're fighting Jack Shore, right? He's caught people with knees on the back foot, kicks to the face, and everything. Also, Jack Shore is a bit younger. He hasn't taken as much damage. This should be an excellent fight. Very technical. Back and forth chess match, but I do think Jack Shore should be able to take it. And then Yoel Alvarez versus Armin Saryukian. Okay, so this would be a good fight. I just hope Alvarez can make the weight, man. He missed weight twice. One, he weighed at 159. The other one, 157. He's a huge guy for the 155-pound weight class. He's 6'3". Armin Saryukian is 5'7". There's going to be a huge difference in size between the two. But the difference with what you saw with Thiago Moises when he fought Alvarez was... When Elvis started to put the pressure on him, he started to find the opening with the knee to the right hand combination. Moises was starting to load up on his shots and he was getting interrupted by the jab. Elvis has a very quick jab. It's very long. It's strong. He has great knees, push kicks, and elbows in the clinch. But here's the thing, man. Number one, Elvis is going to be a lot slower than Armin Saryukian. Number two, not great boxing defense at all. Doesn't really pick his hands up too much. Doesn't move his head too much. And he keeps his head above his shoulders and above his punches. That's a big opening for Armin Saryukian to land a leaping left hook. Probably the best weapon Saryukian can go to on the feet. There's the overhands as well. There's going to be the leg kicks. And above all else, something that Moises did not show in their fight, Saryukian will attempt takedowns. He will not be afraid at all to go to the ground with Elvis, even though Elvis has an amazing triangle. The six foot three stature is great to attack triangles, but Saryukian went to the ground and held his own with Islam Makashev. Going to the ground with Alvarez ain't a thing, man. He's going to tap the single leg. He's going to shoot under the jabs, get his head on the outside of Alvarez's lead leg in order to break him down, get him to the ground, and control him. Pass the guard when Alvarez goes for the triangle and ultimately just dominate through the action. And then your next question, how do you see Oliveira versus Makashev going after seeing his performance against Dustin? Honestly, what we saw against Dustin doesn't really change too much of what I thought about him versus Makashev. We knew how good Oliveira is on the ground. We knew if he got Dustin down, he would dominate. And the striking, it didn't really show much of a difference. Oliver is pretty much as good as we thought he was going to be against Dustin. And a fight with Makashev might be a little bit different. It might go to the ground. I don't think Oliver would take Makashev down, but Makashev could definitely take Oliveira down. I don't know if he wants to do that. He might do so. Try to smash on top. Be very patient. Not get caught by anything crazy. And try to land as much ground upon as possible. But I also have a big feeling that these two will go after each other in the stand-up. I believe Makashev is very confident in his striking skills against Oliveira. And Oliveira is going to fight the way he always fights. So no matter how the fight goes down, it's going to be intriguing, man. On the ground, I have no idea who is going to win. You have the two best grapplers in the entire lightweight division. On the feet, there's something that's unpolished about the two, but at the same time, they could put for an exciting stand-up fight too. Oliver is going to put the pressure on Makashev, and that's going to make Makashev respond in some way. He might shoot under for the takedown, turn into the clinch, reverse the position, and put Oliveira up against the cage. If Makashev goes the safe route, he's going to just look to control Oliveira against the cage. So when you really think about the fight, Makashev has more control over what's going to happen because of his wrestling threat. Just because of that and how much stronger he is than Oliveira, it leaves Oliveira to react to a lot of things besides his initial pressure on the feet. So it's an exciting fight. I don't know who is going to win, man. The more I think about it, the more I think Makashev will win. And then we go to I Stand With Eljo, the only one. Okay, so I already answered your first question. 
but let's go to your other ones. Just how good was Pat Healy? Bailey was pretty good. He was a big guy for the division. He held his own with a lot of great guys. But ultimately, when he fought the topper echelon of the lightweight division, he got beat. Definitely one of the better B-tier fighters in the lightweight division's history. Your next question, is Colby Covington overrated? His best wins are RDA, Lawler and Woodley were on losing streaks, Damian Maia, who has routinely lost to wrestlers, and is some of Connor's effect rubbing off on Colby because of how he's weaponized the media via his troll gimmick? No, he is not overrated. I understand what you're saying, right? RDA was a small welterweight. He really didn't do great against wrestlers. It was a great stylistic match for Colby. Lawler was already old. Woodley was old. Maya was also kind of old, and he never really did well against wrestlers. His Dong Yoon Kim fight was pretty good. But ultimately, what you really have to look at is, yes, those wins that he has don't look exceptional because of who he fought at what time he fought them but then look at his fights with Usman very close fights both of them you can also chalk that up to it was also a good stylistic matchup for Colby because they're both good wrestlers and not skilled strikers so yeah I get your point he needs to fight a top contender who's in their prime maybe like a Leon Edwards or Vicente Luque right now in order to beat them he has no wins over a contender in their prime besides I would say Dong Hyun Kim who was number seven I think when they fought each other so that is true, he might be overrated, but I think a lot of people are just looking at his performances against Usman, along with those wins that he's had prior. If he goes out there and smashes, like, uh, I don't know, Vicente Luque, then, like, nobody can really say anything against him and say that he's overrated. And when you say the Connor effect, I don't know exactly what effect you mean necessarily. Colby's doing very well in the media. He's actually much better than he used to be. And then we're going to Shadow Incorporated. Looking at how all the divisions stacked up exactly a year ago, any major surprises or seems to be going as expected. Also, what would be a good fight for Nate, Connor, and Tony at this stage of their career? Love the content, keep it up. So exactly a year ago. Wow, there's actually some things that look a lot different, especially from lightweight and bantamweight. Those are the most changed divisions. For bantamweight, exactly a year ago, Cody Garbrandt was ranked number three in that division. Frankie Edgar was number four. Jose Aldo was below Rafon at number six. Aljamain Sterling was not the champ. But for lightweight, Habib was the champ. Now he's retired. Charles Oliveira was number three. Conor McGregor, Tony Ferguson, and Dan Hooker were four, five, and six. Right now, they're seven, eight, and nine. They all move together. Paul Felder was number eight. Now he's retired. Diego Ferreira was number nine. Now he's number 15. Ally Quinta was number 10. Now I believe he retired. Kevin Lee was number 11. Now he's not even in the UFC. Benio Dariush was number 12. Now he's number three. Islam Makashev was number 13. Now he's number four. Drew Dober was number 15. Now he's not ranked. That lightweight division changed so much. Like half of the guys are not even in the UFC anymore. The only guys that did not change were Justin Gaethje, Dustin Poirier, and Hoffa Dos Anjos. Gaethje and Poirier back then were ranked number one and two. Today, they're ranked number one and two. RD was ranked number seven before, and now he's number six. Everybody else changed. The major surprises were Connors and Tony's decline, Kevin Lee not being in the UFC anymore, but Neil Dariush's rocket ship to number three, and honestly, even Dan Hooker falling was actually pretty surprising. And what would be good for Nate, Connor, and Tony right now? Connor and Tony need a fight. That's the only fight I want to see with Tony Ferguson. I do not want to see him get eviscerated by Michael Chandler. That would be one of the worst fights for Tony Ferguson right now. It does nothing for him. It's not a big money fight. He's not going to get pay-per-view points most likely. He should be aiming to fight Conor McGregor and Conor should be aiming to fight him. They're both right next to each other in the rankings as well. They're both on the decline. As for Nate Diaz, Dustin Poirier. That would be the fight right now. And then we go to the Beta Alpha. Does Surreal Gun's performance grappling-wise against Nganu scare you about his chances against Curtis Blaze, John Jones, and Stipe? Keep up the great work. Love everything you do. Thank you so much, man. And yeah, it kind of scares me a little bit more about his chances against the wrestlers. Because even where Nganu has his strength, those guys like Blaze, Jones, and Stipe have the skill behind their wrestling. And then we go to Super Look. 
Do you think there will ever be something done about the inconsistent and sometimes completely ridiculous judging? Is there even anything the UFC can do to change and improve it? I don't think anything is going to be done about it. They try to change the rules and some things are better, some things are worse. And it's not even just the rules that are bad. It's like the judges don't even know what the rules are anymore. And sometimes they're not even looking at the fight. When you have incompetent judges with a flawed rule set, you're going to get some ridiculous scorecards. And I don't think the UFC could really do much about it. I mean, they can kind of request what to do, but I don't think they care too much as long as it's not hurting what they can put on for fights. I don't think they're going to care too much. I mean, the old rules are horrendous. And that was going on for what, 15 years? It's all about the commissions. And then we go to Gillet Abdi. How far do you see Saeed Nurmagomedov going? Could you do him versus the top 15 of the bantamweight division? He surprised me. Saeed turned up against Damon, got his first submission win in the UFC, and it was actually his first submission attempt. He's never even attempted a submission for as long as he's been in the UFC. Everything was about striking with this guy and defending takedowns. For him to submit Cody Stamen of all people in 47 seconds, that is crazy, man. That is so insane. And that just shows that Saeed Nurmagomedov is better than I expected. I've never seen a submission game to that effect. He's a big guy for the division. His striking is getting sharper and sharper. Even as little as we saw against Damon, his spinning kicks were on point. His head kicks, some of his combinations and close as Cody Stamen was pressuring him. He seemed to be calm under that pressure. And that's great to see from someone who throws so many chaotic attacks out there. I mean, like I said before, more spinning back fist than he throws jabs. And that's literal too. I'm not even exaggerating. But how does he do against the top 15? Let's see. I think he beats a Sun Sao. I think he has a back and forth with Song Yadong. I will lean to Saeed, but that's a close fight. I think he beats Ricky Simone. I think he beats Sean O'Malley. He definitely beats Frankie Edgar. He beats Marlon Moraes. I think he beats Pedro Munoz, but that's a dangerous fight. That could definitely go to Pedro's side. It really depends the way Pedro fights that one. He beats Marlon Vera due to volume. He loses to Dominic Cruz. Loses to Marab. Loses to Rafont. Loses to Corey Sanhagen, but that's a close fight. Loses to Jose Aldo. Beats TJ Dillashaw. Loses to Piotr Jan and loses to Aljamain Sterling. And then we go to Amari Kisi. How do you think Pietro Jan now fares against Dominic Cruz, Hennem Barrow, and TJ Dillashaw all in their primes? Destroys every single one of them. I think Hennem Barrow might be the toughest fight for him due to his takedown defense, due to how good his leg kicks are. His counter punching was insane. His counter kicks were insane. This fight has to happen without USADA. But I think ultimately as the pressure starts carrying on and as Pietro Jan downloads what Hennem Barrow does, I think he would ultimately crumble Barrow and break him systematically. He's too sharp of a puncher. He'll find those openings, especially as Barrow starts to pull and post away and the pressure from Pietron is going to be a little bit too much. As for Dominic Cruz, he defends all his takedowns, counter punches him very easily. I think he figures out Dominic Cruz very quickly. Every time Cruz comes in, he's going to take what Cody Garbrandt did and Henry Cejudo did to another level. And as for TJ Dillashaw, that could be a little bit back and forth, but inside of exchanges, TJ gets destroyed. And then we go to Artemios Nicola. Hey, Weasel, love your content. Thank you so much, man. <laughs> you can see the future. So MMA training is still highly individualized, non-standardized, partly because of its complexity, and there's seemingly not a single method of training that is more ideal than any other. Do you see the specific school of training, like Sambo training, for an example, consistently producing better MMA fighters than the others? As MMA grows to a mature sport, what do you think a standardized MMA training program will look like in a few years in terms of parameters, such as a time allocation to MMA footwork, versus kickboxing, versus wrestling, versus jiu-jitsu, versus strength and conditioning, frequency of training, time of training processions, etc. This, I believe, is going to happen in the future for sure. You can't just have individual martial arts just lingering out there and then everybody just trying to put it together. For an example, right now, we do have MMA training programs. We do have MMA gyms right now. But most of them, 
don't have everything. For an example, the MMA gym I went to for years, up until like COVID happened, is specialized in Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. It didn't really have much about boxing, not much about kickboxing, not much about wrestling. The strength and conditioning was very limited. And ultimately, this is what like most gyms, most gyms look like unless you go to these mega gyms like ATT, Greg Jackson's, or whatever other gym that you might even have to have some kind of requirement in order to join it. Where you go to Sambo, this is like a whole system that they've had for years. Sambo and Combat Sambo are different, right? Combat Sambo is almost exactly like MMA. Sambo is a complete form of grappling. And they teach kids this, right? Over here in the United States, you have wrestling, jiu-jitsu, judo. Like, you have to learn everything individually. Over there in Russia, that's why they produce such great grapplers over there. They've been learning all forms of grappling together ever since they were a kid. And when you combine all forms of grappling together... That replicates what MMA does with grappling. Whereas in the United States, when you learn wrestling by itself, jiu-jitsu by itself, judo by itself, and then you go right into MMA after learning all this, you got to take bits and pieces from each and throw away what doesn't work. Because MMA wrestling is very different than freestyle wrestling, folk style wrestling, and wrestlers who have competed in MMA have said the same exact thing. They actually had to remove more of what they learned from wrestling than keep it going into MMA. That's how crazy it is. So this standardized MMA training, it's really hard to think about unless you're trying to mimic what you see in MMA fights and transition that into a training form. And in order to do this accurately, you can't use big gloves. I think big gloves teaches bad habits. And I believe in the near future, most MMA gyms are going to throw those away. And there isn't really a time allocation I could really put forward for the footwork, for the kickboxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, etc. I think strength and conditioning should come last in terms of importance, but all the skills that you have to learn, I think they have to be individualized. I think they have to be specific, subjective to each person. Some guys are naturally better at striking and they're weak in wrestling. So they're gonna have to put more time into that wrestling. I find it somewhat ineffective for gyms to have a set time for each session. I understand that's how you have to do it due to business, but just like school, when you go to high school or college, everybody learns at a different speed and everybody's good at different things, which means they don't need as much time in specific subjects in order to do well in those. I could put myself as an example. I never had to study for math. I was naturally always good at math. I never had to take notes. I would take tests. I would ace everything in those. But when it came to something like biology, I had to spend more time to take notes, to research, even going home and read the books and stuff. I had to do so because I wasn't as good at that as I was in math, right? Similar kind of thing when it comes to MMA training. Some guys are going to have natural footwork. Some guys are going to have natural kickboxing skills. Maybe very weak jiu-jitsu skills and it's taking them a little bit longer in order to learn it. So the standardized MMA training, I don't think it's ever going to be perfect. But great question, man. But then we go to M. Schuheiber. Looking at the entirety of 2021, which are the worst, most disappointing fights you came across that either sucked or didn't meet your expectations? Loving the content, man. Keep it up. I appreciate it, man. The worst one by far that comes to my mind, Thiago Santos versus Johnny Walker. I thought that fight was going to be crazy. They're the two most wild guys in that division, and it turned out to be lackluster. Nothing much happened. It was more of a chess match, and I appreciate that, but man, it did not live up to expectations at all. After that, I can't really think of a fight. Even Surreal Gone versus Rosenstrike, like, I thought that was going to happen that way, and I enjoyed it, man. I know a lot of people said it was boring, but I enjoyed it. And that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm going to try to get this out more consistently, but I've been doing a lot of things lately, man. Extremely busy, more than I've ever been before. And I'm actually planning on probably doing some watch parties for the fights. But in the beginning, I don't think I'm going to be doing the face reveal first until I get the whole setup corrected. So can't wait to do that. And I'll see you guys in the next video.